0: Well, good morning. good morning. You know, before we begin our worship service, we meet back as, as uh, those involved in the worship service, we meet back in this room and we pray and share some prayer requests and just sort of discuss what the Lord's doing in our lives a little bit. And today we're reminded of just the fact, through, through some comments made, that every time we gather together, we're reminded of two glorious truths as Christians. And that is that we have the word of God and we have the people of God. And in every way, in every circumstance, both those deep, dark, negative circumstances of fear and uncertainty, hopelessness, we have these two things, these two pillars for the soul, these two pillars for life. And in those high moments, those moments of joy and rejoicing as James talks about, moments of singing, we have each other, we sing out to one another, and that encourages those who perhaps are going through these afflictions. We're afflicted sometimes so that we can comfort those who are afflicted. We, we read in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians. And so it's a special time when we gather together like this on Sunday. It's special. It's not just a, a, another thing we do in our week. It's not just something that uh, we do as, as kind of a... Uh, A beginning to to Sunday, or as a Christian, we check the box. But this is true. This is wonderful. It's beautiful. We're here together as a people. So I pray that you'll see that. You'll feel that weightiness as we worship the Lord together today. One of the most important elements, I think, of sermon preparation is getting a skeletal structure. Now, some people are less inclined to affirm skeletal structure than others. I am not that. Uh, for me, not only do I have to have a skeletal structure, it has to be a very firm one and a fuller one. Uh, it's just the way my brain works. But I think regardless of how one preaches or how one thinks about a sermon, this is an important element to have some kind of idea of how what you're going to say fits together into a whole and how the various parts are together. So one of the things that you can easily fall into as a, as a preacher is throughout the week, you know, you have that kind of impending deadline. You're going to be preaching that sermon and maybe you have a, a couple of things that you have to do that week in terms of speaking. And so you're, you're moving towards that sermon at the end of the week. And there is that need to get that skeletal structure in place so that you can put meat on that skeleton. Uh, and that's uh, the, the, the sec, kind of the second thing, but the skeletal structure is very important. And this week, one of the things that I kind of was really working through is how do we come at the Beatitudes as we come into Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12, this glorious set of verses that are very familiar, I'm sure, to most of us. And so, as I am sort of working on the text on my own and then reading as widely as I can to see what other people have said about this large chunk of scripture, I knew going into it that this wasn't going to be one sermon. But... I didn't know exactly how I would approach it, and so as I, I'm digging through, and the Lord's working on me as I as I come across these verses, He's convicting me, and I'm feeling that uh, I'm feeling God is showing me kind of my life and, and what I'm reading, and you know we we all we all experience that as we encounter God's Word, and so I leave where I'm at, and I I go walk into my car, and I have in my mind this thought: I've got to get that skeleton. Like that's, that's, that's where I'm headed now. I've got to get this skeleton because then it's time to put some meat on it. And, but immediately because God had been working on me in some very specific ways in my heart, I said, well, I just need to spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And I'll do that in a moment. And so I set out to pray to the Lord, thinking about this skeletal structure. And as I was praying, what came to my mind was just to thank God for these various things that we find in this passage. So I knew going into it, I wasn't going to dig in to the Beatitudes specifically today, but I knew that I wanted to really grapple with this entire chunk of scripture. And what God was doing in my heart is, is I was just beginning to thank him for these various things. And it was like God was saying to me, this needs to be your structure. What do you, how do you respond to this passage of scripture, this chunk of text, this glorious set of verses As they come at you, how do you respond to me? And what came to my mind was simply gratitude. And that's why I've entitled the sermon for today, Grateful for Grace. Grateful for Grace, our first response to the Beatitudes. Because I think that really is what we must do before we dig into any of the details. And one of the things that a lot of commentators on the Sermon on the Mount say is that the tendency as you go into this well-known passage of Scripture is to try to answer all of those conundrums of the Sermon on the Mount. The law and the gospel and the big conundrum. And then you kind of go in and you begin to look at these specific things, you know, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. What? what do we make of that stuff? And what do we make about going uh, that extra mile? Or if you get struck on one cheek, you turn to him the other. What about all of this stuff? I mean, are we to take this literally? How do we understand it? These are the questions of the Sermon on the Mount. Many questions are raised by this passage of scripture. But one of the things that A lot of commentators point out is that rather than just jumping in to all of those little details, it's important that you take the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, as a unit, and that you let the power of the entire thing hit you before you go in and try to figure out all of the details. And so in some ways, that's what I want to do this morning with the Beatitudes. Grateful for grace, our first response to the Beatitudes. And I think as we come to these verses... Verse three to 12 in chapter five of Matthew, I think there are five things that that we're thankful to God for or five expressions of God's grace that I think we can thank God for as we move into this passage. We thank him for citizenship. We thank him for contentment. We thank him for clarity, for conviction and for capacity. So let's read these. Maybe well known for you, maybe not but beautiful and glorious nonetheless. Verses three to 12. I'll start in verse two. And he, speaking of Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray to the Lord. Our Father, what a grace it is that we can pray and know that you hear us. God, even now, even now you hear. And Lord, we thank you for your attentive ear. We thank you for your attentiveness to our lives, not just our collective life together here as a local church, but that in ways we don't even understand or know, you are looking deeply into every circumstance, every care, every facet of every life present in this building right now. And God, we're so grateful that when we pray to you, you not only hear us, but you give us the assurance that you are our Father, that you express your loving kindness towards us, your grace, your mercy that you express a fatherly affection for us and that you are our father in heaven, that you are God, that there is none like you in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that there is none like you and that you are all powerful, all knowing, always present that you are this great and sovereign king. And Lord, we know that when we ask you things, you are able to do them. You are powerful. You are able to change the trajectory of our lives in a moment. And God, we praise you that we come here this morning with many cares and we can put those cares at your feet and know that you care and that you are able to bring change. You are able to bring remedy. You're able to do things far more abundantly. You're able to do things than we could even imagine. And so, God, we bring our cares to you today. But, Lord, we recognize that our cares oftentimes are worldly cares. Our cares oftentimes are generated by our own lack of insight and perception about what you're doing in the world and about who you are and about your purposes that are much greater than us. And so, God, we ask for forgiveness for being so worldly, for being so limited in our perspective, And God, we just ask that you will raise our eyes up to you, that you will help us to see you in glory and help us to see your divine purposes being worked out, even in our hardships and our sufferings. And God, we pray that as we look at the kingdom and as we look at what it means to be in the realm of the kingdom, to live even now as members of that kingdom, God, that you would give us great joy. And this morning specifically, that you would give us great gratitude. Father, the truth is we don't thank you enough. We don't thank you enough for the mundane things of life that you provide for us, our, our food and our shelter and our clothing and family and love and enjoyments and so forth. God, we don't thank you enough for those things. Far less do we thank you that we belong to this kingdom and that these things which we read are our very own things. God, help us to see that and to, to be grateful to you for that and help us to express that gratitude in all the ways that your word calls us to. God, would we just leave here this morning thanking you for the grace that you have shown us, and would we be prepared to live our lives in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. By your grace and for your glory, would you be with us today? In Jesus' name, amen. So grateful for grace... Our first response to the Beatitudes, and the first thing we thank God for this morning, is our citizenship. One of the first observations that we make when coming to the Beatitudes as a unit of text is the way in which this section is bracketed by the words, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So look at verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you go down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we find in verses 11 and 12 are really an expansion or an unpacking of what we have in verse 10. And that tells us that whatever we're going to make of the Beatitudes, this section of text, and I'll talk a little bit more about that idea of Beatitude in a little bit, but whatever we're going to make of this section that is entitled in our Bibles, the Beatitudes, we have to deal with the fact that the entire section is bracketed with this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Everything that we have here. This is the prevailing theme of the section. I think we are meant to, to say And we've already seen last week that this is the prevailing idea really that kind of moves into the Sermon on the Mount. So not only do we have going into the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven, but in the very first section, we have that that entire section bracketed by this idea of the kingdom of heaven. We saw how in chapter four, Jesus began to preach after John the Baptist's death, Jesus began to preach that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus began to preach the good news of the kingdom. He, the king, as we find out throughout the first few chapters of Matthew, he's portrayed in various ways as the king. The king begins to preach his kingdom. And this is essentially the reign of Christ. What is this kingdom? It is the reign of Christ. We talked about that last week. Wherever Christ reigns, there there, there is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus says, in the gospel of Luke that it is not something that we currently see, although I believe one day we will see it and we will see it on the earth. But now we cannot see it. There's no expression. There are no towering buildings. There's no regalia for this kingdom, although some would like to to sort of make it appear on earth. It is within us, this kingdom of God. It is already, but it is also not yet. So we recognize the fact that the Bible tells us Christ will reign upon the earth, that Christ will one day reign when his kingdom is consummated and he is king over all. But right now we see that there is much rebellion against this king. We also see that even in our own hearts, there is submission to the king in some respects, but in some respects we do not submit to the king as we ought to. We know that perfectly one day we will submit to this king in every single area of our lives in every single way. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. So if the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is a description of life in the kingdom, then this particular part, which we have at the beginning called the Beatitudes, gives us the characteristics of its citizens. This is kingdom Citizens. These are, as we see here described in verses three to 12, this is a description of the kingdom citizens. The Beatitudes tell us what the citizens of the kingdom are and what the citizens of the kingdom do. And then it follows that by the blessings that naturally flow out of our identity as citizens in this kingdom. It is as though we are traveling around with a passport that has this text as our picture. And I want you to think about that. You go, those of you who have a passport, you go in and out of various countries and you have an American passport and you show that passport and you have your picture as an American, that is your citizenship, that is your identity. There is, in a a real way, we open up the passport, our spiritual passport, the passport of our lives, who we truly are, and the picture that we see there is what we have in these verses. This is the picture of a kingdom citizen. As Lloyd-Jones says, as I quoted last week, this is what we ought to be and what we can be. As Sinclair Ferguson said, we looked at this last week as well, what the Lord intends our lives to become. That's what we find in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and particularly in these Beatitudes. So before we go through each of these character features and blessings, I think we are meant to get this one big idea. We who are disciples, we who have Christ reigning over our lives, have been given this citizenship. So how? How did we come to be citizens of this kingdom? You know, everyone who's here this morning is not necessarily a citizen of this kingdom. I hope that everyone here today is. It's my hope that if Christ were to return, that all of us would be shown to be citizens of this kingdom and would be submissive to this king. But that's probably not the case. Some here maybe are not citizens, have never bowed to this Christ. So how is it that some of us have come to be citizens and how is it that you can become a citizen? I think we get the answer most clearly in Romans chapter four, verses seven to eight. And in fact, it's this word blessed, which we'll talk about in a moment. This word blessed that gets repeated throughout this passage, I think gives us a clue to help us answer this question. So Romans four, seven to eight, which is a quote from Psalm 32, one and two. And it says this, Blessed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I'll say that again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is not a kingdom in which the participants or the, the citizens, the members of this kingdom, this is not a kingdom in which sin has been shed off. This person has, has run away from sin and gotten out from under it and is now there pure and holy in this, in this way of perfection. That is not what we find. What we find is that the citizens of this kingdom are people whose sin has been dealt with, whose sin has been removed, covered, it says. Covered by what? Covered by the blood of Jesus, covered by the atoning death, the sacrifice of this king, the one we see speaking here in these verses. Sins covered, sins forgiven. If you're not a believer, what you need is your sins forgiven. What you need is your sins covered. You don't need to work it off. You never will. You don't need to earn salvation. You don't need to find this favor with God or strive and make sure you get your life right. It's not going to happen. What you need is for sins to be forgiven and covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Praise God. That though I am a sinner, God does not count my sin against me. Is God counting your sin against you? Because if you, if he is, one day you will die and you will spend eternity in hell. That is truth. You may not like it. It's not popular. And it may make you feel very uncomfortable. But this is precisely what happens to all who die enemies of God but praise his name forever that he removes that sin. He covers that sin. And for those who belong to him, he does not count their sin against them. That's who we are. People whose sins are not counted against them. So the first thing we need to do before we go any further in this Sermon on the Mount, before we go any further in the Beatitudes, is we need to truly deal with what it looks like to be grateful for the fact that we are citizens. Are you, are you excited? Are you proud to be an American citizen? I think everyone, I imagine, I assume everyone in here is an American citizen, maybe not. I think probably you traveling around the world, you may have that feeling, that sense of pride. You know, I, I believe that a certain level of patriotism is good and healthy. I think that can take you in all kinds of kinds of uh, strange directions if you take it too far. You idolize your, your nation Just like if you idolize your family or anything else, it's unhealthy. But I think there's a a certain level of patriotism that is good and right and proper. And I'm sure as you travel around that you you feel a sense of pride that you belong to America, that you're an American, that God has given you uh, the, the opportunity to live in a land like America. Are you grateful for your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven in which your sins have been removed, covered, forgiven? I think that is the first response we must have if we are to deal rightly with this glorious passage of God's word. The second thing that we thank God for is contentment. Contentment. Leon Morris, the commentator of various books of the New Testament, wrote this in his commentary on Matthew. It is significant that this sermon begins with Beatitudes. Rather than imperatives. Notice that. Let me interrupt him for a second. It doesn't say, Be poor in spirit, mourn, be meek, and so forth. Does it doesn't say that? It says, Blessed are those. So forth. Leon Morris again. It is significant that this sermon begins with beatitudes rather than imperatives. Jesus will go on to make great demands on his followers, but these demands are to be understood in a context of grace. And that's what we saw when we looked at Titus, right? Remember the foundation, chapter two? The reason, chapter three? That's precisely what we found in Titus, that all of this must be understood in the context of grace. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which means happy or blessed. So if you read in the Latin Vulgate, if you read these, these verses, you see beati, 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 blessed, blessed, blessed. And that's why this section is called the Beatitudes because of the repetition of the word blessed or happy. And so people debate over how many Beatitudes we have here. I think the best answer to that question is that we have eight. Beatitudes and how they're divided up is generally the first four are taken together and the second four are taken together. But as I said before, verses 11 and 12, or verse 11, is really not another beatitude, like a ninth beatitude. It's an extension of what we have in verse 10. And it's interesting that Jesus is going through. Notice this at the beginning of these beatitudes, he said, Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are those. And as he's doing this, he then gets to them blessed are you. And he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It's third person, it's out there. And that comes in for him to say, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. This is all moving toward this intimate belonging relationship between Jesus and his disciples. If the idea of kingdom brackets this section The idea of blessedness is what carries it along. And we see this idea of being blessed or being happy. We see this also not only as the thing that carries this passage along, but we also see it as the climax. Look at verse 12. What does it say there? Rejoice and be glad. So at least in terms of the skeletal structure of this passage, we have this this exuberance. We have this image of just pure, unadulterated joy and happiness and gladness. It's going through, weaving through all the way through the passage. And then it culminates in that final verse, rejoice and be glad. What we have before us in the Beatitudes is true and supreme happiness. I think there is an entire section in Barnes & Noble on on kind of happiness, on what you need to do to be happy. is all these, these strange guru types with their face on the front, on, on the cover of the book who are basically saying, I can make you happy. How you can be happy. And they give that cheesy smile, you know, that you see on, these, on the cover of these books. This is how, this is happiness. And it's within the context of citizenry in this kingdom. This is happiness from God's perspective. As God, the creator of man, looks at man, what does God think is right and good and true and and manness, humanness? Isn't that what we want to answer? It's not what we think because we didn't make ourselves. God made us and he formed us for perfection and he made us and he crafted us and we have his will for our lives. We have his understanding of what human looks like, what man looks like, what woman looks like, what human being ought to be. And that very thing is happiness, understood rightly. Blessedness in the true, deep, philosophical, and theological sense of the word. Happiness from God's perspective. Divine approval to be a privileged recipient of divine favor. That's what this word means, blessed, happy. The irony here is that this blessedness or happiness is associated with what we often take as utterly contrary to happiness. Now, notice this in this passage. It's it's actually pretty ironic. And it flies in the face of everything that we think in our contemporary culture. Look at these verses. What What are some of the things? I mean, okay, we've already established the fact this is a happy passage, Blessed, 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 blessed. Rejoice and be glad. But look at, look at what we have in this happy passage. Poverty. Now, poverty of spirit, that is. It's important to emphasize that. We'll talk about that later. Mourning. What? How in the world are happiness, tr- happiness and mourning have no relationship to each other? In, in anyone's mind. No one associates mourning and happiness. That, it's, it's, like, no, it's like people sitting in the back laughing at a funeral. Although I've always thought it's strange. that when you go to a wake or something, there, there's all these really chatty conversations going on. And I guess that's okay. I mean, in some respects, because family's catching up and you know, I don't want to make a judgment. Maybe you're at a funeral recently and you were doing that. But... I've just always, it's always felt weird and wrong and, and not wrong in, you know, the moral sense, like you're being judged, but, but it just doesn't feel right. It's, it's, it's mourning. It's not happy. It's, it's, it's not just a celebration of a person's life. It's recognizing that death is real and it's wrong. It's not good. It was never God's intention. God didn't create death. He created life and said, it is very good and Satan's lies and man's sin brought death. It's not a time of happiness. It's a time of mourning. Mourning and happiness just don't go together very well in our brains. What else do we have here? Hunger and thirst? No one associates that with happiness. And so on and so forth. It goes all the way down till you get to the to the last verses of this section. And what does it say? blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, if you've never been persecuted, this is one of the things that we oftentimes think, if, if for people who've never been persecuted, we oftentimes romanticize it in our minds. We have this idea of persecution being this glorious thing. But if, if you've ever experienced real persecution, you would not say that. No one, in, no one wants to be persecuted. In fact, Jesus never wanted his disciples to just sort of go looking for persecution. Persecution doesn't, doesn't feel nice. No one in our culture would associate that with happiness. And what does it go on to say? Blessed are you when others revile you So often our happiness is tied to what people think about us, what they say about us. Here we have happiness being associated with being reviled, being in a state of being persecuted and being in a state of being reviled. Here's my point. When you get into the details of this passage from our world's perspective, this is not a happy passage at all. It looks quite contrary in every way to happiness. And I think what this reminds us of is that true happiness is not about two things. One, untroubled feelings, poor in spirit, mourning. That's what Jesus says is a portrait of blessedness, a portrait of happiness. So happiness does not, as it oftentimes is associated with in our culture, it it is not an untroubled state of emotional well-being. I just feel so nice. I just feel so good. I don't have anything right now troubling me. I just feel totally at ease about life. This is not happiness. True happiness is not about untroubled feelings, and it is not about the absence of negative circumstances. Here we have very negative circumstances, persecution, being reviled, and so forth. It is not about these things at all. So here's a question I want to ask you. Why do we chase these things? We do, right? Yeah, we do. We all do. We want to feel good. How often are we motivated in our lives by the things we do, by that pursuit, that strong pursuit to feel at ease, to feel that, that happy feeling? We'll do everything we can to get that feeling. Sometimes we reduce the Christian life to that feeling, yeah, I haven't felt that in a while. Oh, I felt that yesterday. It was so nice. That's the way we think. That's the, what we chase. What about these circumstances? How often do we chase having perfect circumstances? If only I can get this right and tweak this and make sure that this, that this is in order, then and then and then there will be happiness. No, Never because happiness doesn't have to do with the absence of bad adverse circumstances. It doesn't have to do with that at all. So neither untroubled feelings nor the absence of negative circumstances. And let me submit to you this idea. When we chase these things, listen to this. When we chase these things, it is like trying to apply for citizenship in another kingdom. Remember your passport. Remember who you are. Remember the the kingdom, the nation, the holy nation to which you belong. Here, I'm not referring to America. I am referring to the kingdom of heaven. When we chase after these things, we act like people who are outside of the kingdom. We act like people who don't belong in the kingdom because that is what the world chases. And that's precisely what Jesus will say at the end of Matthew chapter six. We have all of this chasing and all of this seeking and all of this pursuing, and we worry. And Jesus will address that specifically in that chapter. So with our citizenship comes contentment, true, lasting, deep, abiding happiness, blessedness, contentment, joy. So we thank God that true happiness is within our grasp. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the midst of all the turmoil of your life, all the stressors, all the things that tear you down, all the things that make you feel like life is hopeless, life is ruined? Have you ever said my life is ruined? Or have you ever said my life is so bad or so rough or whatever else? Have you ever kind of had those moments of complaint before God? I think what God would point you to is this. No, my child, you are happy, truly so. You are blessed, truly so. And that will be fully, perfectly revealed to you in time. Know it now. Know it right now. This is who you are. This is who you are forever. As Jesus said, eternal life is this, that they may know God, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We already have eternal life now. We will never die, never, those of us who belong to God. Happiness is within Our grasp because we are citizens of this kingdom. Thirdly, clarity. We thank God for clarity. One of the wonderful things about this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is overwhelmingly clear. Have you noticed that? It is overwhelmingly clear. The characteristics of kingdom citizens laid out so beautifully and so clearly. What we as Christians ought to be and can be crystal clear. What the Lord intends for our lives to become crystal clear. Three aspects of this clarity that I wanna point you to this morning. Three things that we see in this passage that make it just so beautifully crystal clear. How often in your lives do you just not have clarity? How often in your life do you just feel like it's muddled, it's confused, that there's so many loose ends? (laughs) That's the way it feels all the time, especially when you have a newborn baby. There's just so many things that are just kind of all over the place. You just don't have clarity. You just don't have a handle on it. I think Jesus provides that here in three ways. First, we see the singularity of all of this. Here's what I mean. The character before us in this passage is the character of our Lord Jesus, period. That's it. Everything that we see described is not just a list of things on the wall. It is the very essence of the character of Jesus. So in short, we pursue Christ. We pursue Christ and this begins to manifest itself as a reality in our lives. But let me say this. We stop there too often. And here's where the Sermon on the Mount is edifying for the church. Because we say we pursue Christ. I pursue Christ. I pursue my walk with Christ. I pursue my relationship with Christ. I want the word of Christ to dwell in me richly. I want to be conformed to Christ. I want to serve Christ. We use all this language, biblical language to talk about Christ, but it's vague. It's vaporous. We don't really know what in the world we're even talking about. We just know that we pursue Christ what the Sermon on the Mount comes along and says to us is this is how you do that. This is how you pursue Christ. We pursue him in and through these things. We pursue him through meekness, through pursuing that in his name, in him, we pursue pursue him by being peacemakers, by being those who are poor in spirit and mourn. And I'm looking forward to kind of getting into each of these in detail. But that's the first way that we have clarity. We have singularity here, single thing, single-minded purpose, pursue Christ. Secondly, we have simplicity. This is a simple description. This is one of the things that commentators say is that there's a depth here that you could never get to. It just keeps going and going and going. You could never, what is that famous saying? Uh, The Bible is, uh, what is it? Deep enough, deep enough to drown an elephant but shallow enough for for, for a mouse to play in. That's that's not right at all, but I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. It's it's like that. It's something like that. You get the idea. That one obviously wasn't written down here in my notes. But you get the idea. There's depth. There is such richness and depth to what we find here, but there's not really a lot of breadth. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you compare this to, to, say, the Pharisees, and, and I'm not saying that this is just some kind of law, but what I am saying is that if you compare this to kind of what is ideal, what does ideal life look like in Jesus' time, you would have had all of these Pharisees and other guys who had these laundry lists of things, and you just lose your mind because it's, it's not happening. And actually this isn't happening either unless you belong to Christ and you're in his kingdom, you have the life of the spirit in you. But what Jesus does is he boils it down. He boils it down to its essence. And in each of these is such a depth. It's kind of like the 10 commandments in that way. In the 10 commandments, you have all of God's moral law right there. And there's a depth and depth. Just, you just keep going and going and going. You never get to the bottom of it. But there is a simplicity so that the child can begin to swim in this list. The baby Christian can begin to swim, though the oldest theologian, it's not even close to the bottom. Saint, martyr, missionary, average Christian serving the Lord every day, not getting to the bottom, yet swimming in it nonetheless. There's simplicity here. There's clarity in that. Thirdly, there is connectivity. And what I mean by that is these ideas aren't isolated. You don't just have blessed, boom, blessed, boom, blessed. These isolated ideas that have no relation to one another. These are not isolated, compartmentalized, kind of ethical statements that you just kind of throw together, cram together, put in your backpack and go on. That's not what we have here at all. We have a kind of connectivity between these ideas. Not only are they interrelated, so that in essence, they're all dependent on one another. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without all of the others, but they're also sequential. We begin with what? Being poor in spirit. That's the first. Because you know what poor in spirit means? You come to the end of yourself. You fall on your face before God and you recognize I have absolutely nothing. I am impoverished on the inside. Anything I have is from the Lord. Everything I have is as nothing. That is poverty of spirit. And everything flows out of that. So from that, there is a domino effect, if you want to use that analogy. Or as John Chrysostom, the early church father, called this a golden chain. These are so nicely linked together. So we praise God this morning for clarity. We thank him that he does not make this muddled and confused for us. He does not burden us down with the weight of endless things to consider. He gives it to us in such beautiful simplicity, beautiful singularity, and beautiful connectivity. So we thank God for the clarity of his word and for clarity about the kind of life that we've been born again to live even today. So number four, the fourth thing that I want to thank God for this morning as we move into the, to the Sermon on the Mount, to the Beatitudes, is conviction. Conviction. Any serious study of these Beatitudes by any Christian will inevitably result in one thing very quickly. Conviction. And uh, as we prepare for our elders retreat, one of the things that we are constantly, uh, we, we have some reading probably far more than than is appreciated but we have some reading that we're doing as we prepare for our elders retreat and we're going to go into that and one of the things that we that we constantly are seeing as we do that reading is this idea of starting with confession. That confession is a key part, not only the beginning of the service, but it also kind of carries through into the service. And I just want to thank Jared. He's done an incredible job integrating this into our service, as we've seen with adoration and confession from the very beginning moving forward. The intentionality of our worship team in trying to implement these things has been a real blessing to our church. But it's this idea that we begin with kind of this poverty of spirit and this this being convicted and being laid low and confessing our sinfulness before God. Very important at at the onset, very important at the entrance. And that all goes with this idea of conviction. And this was my experience this past week as I studied this. I said to you all one time, a long time ago when we were in John, back when we were in John, not a long time ago, but fair bit ago, that, you know, I kind of get beat up all week as I'm, as I'm preparing this sermon because the Lord's just, he's convicting me of my sinfulness. He's convicting me of my selfishness, convicting me of my idolatry and showing me all the ways that I'm not pleasing him, that I'm not walking with him, that I'm not being faithful to him. And, and so his word does that in our lives. His word convicts us of our sin. So I want you to consider whether any of these words ever describe you. These words. Neglectful, just let these kind of sit for a moment. Neglectful, distracted, undisciplined, aimless, hopeless, selfish, bored, dry, lustful, Worldly. The fact is that these words describe all of us at various times and to varying degrees. These words that just sort of fall on us. And this is the grace of God, that he doesn't leave us there. That's God's grace. God does not leave us there. He is not content for us to stay that way. He does not want us wallowing around in that, which I just described. He calls us away from these things calls us out of these things. And he does this by this glorious grace called conviction. Praise God that we're convicted. You know, you think about the struggle in the Christian life. Romans 8 talks about the fact that the struggle itself shows us that we have the spirit. If you don't struggle, you're not a Christian. If you don't battle, you're not a Christian, It doesn't matter how many prayers you've prayed or how long you've been in church. The struggle itself, the warfare in oneself is evidence itself that we belong to God and that the spirit is waging war against the flesh and the flesh is waging war against the spirit. And we do not sow to the flesh that we would live in the spirit. This is always going on. And God's grace, as Titus 2 told us, trains us. It trains us in this to control ourselves and to live this kind of life. The convicting power of God's word is the means by which God does this. And that comes through in no better place than the Sermon on the Mount. In no better place does God give us the grace of conviction than in the Sermon on the Mount. As we see the splendor and beauty of Jesus's perfect righteous character And then we see our lives up against that. We're convicted. We're convicted of our sin by God's grace. So I wanna wanna say this to you. It's very important. Be convicted. Be willing to be convicted. Don't be hard of heart. And stand up against the convicting power of God and vindicate yourself in your sin. Fall over before God's wave of conviction and let him rip that out of your heart and change you. Don't just sit in the sin that you're in. Be convicted. Let God do this work, even this morning. So we thank him. We thank him for this grace. We thank him for all of his graces. This being one of them. I want you to think back over your life. Think about some key moments in which you saw God's convicting grace. Maybe moments in your life where you you were involved in a sin and you were continuing to go down that road and you were bringing devastation and ruin to your life, to others in your life. And by God's convicting grace, whether it was some time in the word or through a sermon or through a song that you a friend who came alongside of you, that God ripped down, snatched you up out of that sin and brought you on a different path. He brought a remedy. He turned the course of your life. Consider that moment that was God's, wonderful and sometimes very painful grace. He disciplines those whom he loves, his sons and daughters. And this very nicely moves into our final point this morning. Last week, as we come to capacity, as we finish up, we thank God for capacity. Last week, I quoted Sinclair Ferguson as saying that the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is, quote, not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. So maybe after that last point, you're thinking, oh no, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling despair. No, 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 no. Don't, stop, stop, stop. That's what Sinclair Ferguson is saying. Don't do that. Rather, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become, what the Lord intends your life to become. So go back to that recollection just a moment ago of, of God's convicting grace. Think about a moment, one specific moment in your life when God's convicting grace was at work. And I want to ask you this one question. I want to ask you to be honest about this. And this is since you've been a Christian. Did it it ever beat you down and leave you in the dirt when you were convicted? Did it beat you down? Did it leave you feeling just ridiculous? No, never. It never does that. It is always filled with two things. God's conviction for the Christian, for the citizen of this kingdom, is always filled with two things one, hope, and two, holy desire. That's the most, being convicted is an incredible thing. Because when you're convicted of your sin and, and, you, and you feel it, you, what, do you, what do you do? You begin to repent and you begin to confess your sin. And there's this amazing light that just comes up in the soul that tells you it can be better. And it tells you not only that, it gives you the desire to overcome it. That's the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a sign that you belong to him. That's a sign that you are his child, that you are his citizen, a citizen of this king. It is always hopeful. It always has the effect of what we find in Romans 7. Romans 7, 24 to 25, Paul says this. Listen to these words. Wretched man that I am. You ever feel that way when you're praying? You know, your devotional time? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Very next words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer. Yes, wretched, but Christ but Christ. And the reason that the conviction is hopeful is because we have the capacity to change course. See, Satan wants you to sit and think this morning that whatever that sin is that's in your life, that's entangling you, that's burdening you, that is oppressing you, that There is no change, of course. You've been doing that for too long. That's just the way life is. You're just struggling through it. Sin or saved by grace kind of mentality. And and, and when I say that, I don't mean that's not true. I mean, it's a kind of, it's an excuse to keep doing it. Oftentimes, that's how we think. So you're just sort of flopping along in it. You're just gonna keep doing it. You're not really repenting of it. What you need to understand is that you can truly turn away and stop or start. You can, you can because you have the capacity. And God's convicting grace, perhaps even this morning is the means by which he desires by his Holy Spirit to take you from going down this road, the way of folly, the way of destruction and turn you back toward this way, the way of wisdom, the way of life, the way of Christ. And this leads to an important point that Lloyd-Jones makes in his commentary on the Beatitudes. And it's this, this is where I'll finish up this morning. And it's this, each beatitude applies to each person. Now, this is hard to swallow. Here's why I say that. Because we have a tendency to think about the Christian life in terms of this, in terms of strengths and weaknesses. In terms of personality traits and temperaments and nature and nurture and so forth. So some Christians are, you know, well, some Christians are the meek ones. That's not me. I'm over here. I have these strengths and some Christians have these strengths and some Christians have them and together we'll live the Sermon on the Mount. No, that's not true. That's not how we ought to think. And this is what's so wonderful as we think about our capacity. Even if your personality, your temperament, your upbringing, and even your own genetics predispose you against these various things which we read, the power of god is so strong so as to make this an abundant reality in your life every single one of them no constraint no limitation on you because of your temperament or whatever no hot headed christian can say well i'm just a type a person i'm just a kind of intense person you know that's how i was raised or this happened or that happened no That's not right. Every Christian is called to be this. Every Christian is called to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, and those who gratefully accept persecution for righteousness' sake. Every single Christian And that's because it's about the power of God. It's not about our power, just another reminder. And here's the thing I want you to see, oftentimes God will manifest the quality that is most uncharacteristic of you, in you, to demonstrate his power, his glory, because he alone can do that, not you. Oftentimes we see God's work in that way. So as we prepare to move into the specific Beatitudes next week, we just pause this morning to to thank God for these things, to thank him for our citizenship, for contentment, for clarity, for conviction, and for our holy spirit given capacity to change. Let's pray. Our holy father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. It is so precious. It's such a joy to preach it, to to read it, to listen to it preached, to listen to it read, to sing it, to pray it, to meditate upon it. God, would our church be filled with people who delight in the word of Christ? Lord, would we be people who meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, who delight in it? People who love your Bible more than we love even our own breath, God, would we be people who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, not those who chase after vanities of this world that are like mist or nothing, feelings that fade, circumstances that change at a whim. God, would we be happy, truly happy because we belong to you. We are citizens of your kingdom. God, we are so grateful that one day this kingdom will be consummated and and we will be able to truly walk in every respect at the depth, not, not just on the surface, not just headed toward the depth, but at the very bottom of the depth, we will live the Sermon on the Mount for eternity. God, we praise you for that. We rejoice that this is ours even now and that much, much can be accomplished in our lives even now much growth, much glorying in you and much being conformed to Christ. Would we not be lazy in our pursuit of these things? Would we pursue them with all of our hearts? As Jesus says here, would we hunger and thirst for righteousness that we might be satisfied? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.